1: Are you a creative who just wrapped up your independent film, new book, or album release? Or are you just looking for help on your fundraising campaign? Well, then you're going to need a marketing strategy.
0: Smart House is a marketing agency that specializes in creative projects and independent films. They provide digital strategies, social media support, publicity services, branding, and fundraising strategies to help indie artists just like you.
1: Smart House was founded to help indie artists with all budgets find their audience and bring their projects to the world. Smart House has helped a ton of artists reach their goals, including the Making Movies is Hard podcast
0: that's right they're helping us grow our audience and they can help you too go to smarthousecreative.com to get started today you know making movies is hard
1: making movies is hard
0: welcome this is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker i'm Mark brussell the founding host of the podcast i'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker my first feature film the alternate is out now on digital and dvd and tubi
1: I'm Liz Manisha, I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently in development on more, more of them. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome wonderful human, writer and director Dawn Jones-Redstone, to talk about the making of her first feature film, Mother of Color, how she came up with the idea for the film, and how she raised the funds in, an, in a non-traditional way. After that, we play another round of the
0: game.
1: Working on pronouncing pronouncing that right, enunciating. But first, <laughs> Arik, tell us briefly what's going on with you.
0: Yeah, so it was my birthday weekend, which was really fun. I ate everything I wanted to eat. And then, yeah, at the end of it, I was fine the whole weekend. Like whatever, all the energy in the world. And then last night I started to get a little cough going on. And then all of a sudden I woke up this morning and my voice was like gone. I basically couldn't talk for the first part of the morning, and then uh, I drank enough tea where I got to this level. So that's what's going on. I've been thinking about the script I want to write a lot, and I thought, I was thinking so hard about Liz. I was thinking and planning and plotting and working on it, and I was like, I was sure I was gonna spend time actually working on it this weekend. And then too much fun to be had, so I didn't do that. I'm hopeful that I'll I'll sit down and put some some actual words to the page on my script in the near future.
1: Wait, i maybe not sp- this week. Oh, wait, go. I, I want to speak to that really briefly. Cause we sure. I interviewed the Alicia's from a for Bernie Madoff yesterday. So low, cause it was your birthday. And at the end, I mean, the episode won't come up for a few weeks. I don't know how you're going to interpret this, but I was like, you know, our normal question is like, what's some bad advice? And she said, really bad advice is telling someone to write every day and that you oh. work in cycles and that, and she actually called it patriarchal to assume that you could force Yourself into creativity every day. I don't know. That's like beyond me. That's too deep for me. But like, it was very wow. interesting that she was like, "You need to listen to your body and the rhythms and instincts that you have, and that you you shouldn't force yourself to write." So, wow, listen to that if you want to as good
0: advice, dude. I feel like we're on like some sort of game show right now, or like not game show, like some talk show, and like the gauntlet just got thrown down, and they have like a big graphic that says like. Okay, gauntlet, boom, decision time. Like, is writing every day patriarchal? <laughs> you go, Liz, take it. I, and, like, I feel like I want to talk about that. It. It's so, that's such a heavy statement. Man, oh man. <laughs> I I guess I see what she means. Like, you know, that like, that's like a very old school, like, you know, a, like rigid, structured, like schoolly kind of way to look at the world where it's like, you have to do it. At this time, every day, or you're a failure kind of thing. I don't know if I could really stretch the patriarchal thing or not, but I see like this idea of being free to like explore your creativity when you're ready, and like don't feel like you have to write every day or you, you, that is like you know like too, putting too much pressure and restriction on you. I can I can see that you know. Yeah, I do like the whole button seat thing. Like if you have a deadline on a script, you know, like just. Put the time to sit in your desk and eventually you'll write something. It'll happen. You know, it will. It just will. If you just do it every day for a, a certain amount of time, like you can't. Your body won't, won't let you not it's do it. It's conditioning. It's environmental
1: conditioning. And I do also think that's fine if you want to condition yourself to be productive.
0: I will say that I spent like, God, what was it? I think I took like two, maybe three months of time where I like was working less to like work on the alternate. And I was just like banging it out, like trying to figure it out, like trying to write this movie. And then like after that time, like I pretty much like didn't have anything. Like I had like half an outline. And like whatever, like some dribs and drabs of pages, and then it was like, I, what what worked for me? Did I ever tell you this story? I, I I had a friend who was like basically my marathon trainer. He trained me to run marathons, and he's not a professional. He's just a buddy of mine who like runs marathons like a crazy person. It was like Ulrich. I'm going to train you to run a marathon. And so he was like, we were ta- we were running and we were talking and he was like, yeah, you're having problems with the script. Like, you just need to set stakes for yourself, dude. Like, you just need to set some fucking boundaries, some stakes. and he, And he called it stakes for stakes. So the deal was, we're going to set a month time limit. You're going to write your script by this date. And if you don't deliver a script to me, then we are going to run a marathon on that day together. Like, and that'll be your punishment. So you either owe me a fucking script for me to read or you have to run a marathon. But either way, you'll buy me a steak dinner after this and I'll give you feedback on the script or... That'll be like our thing that we do after we run this marathon together. Cause he could run a marathon at any time of the day. Like it didn't matter. Like he was so trained, like he could just run. And so, yeah. So basically the first part of the month, like I, I was like still working on the same thing. Then I think I got like, man, maybe like a week out. And I was like, still in the same place. And I was like, this is not working. This is, I'm I'm going to have to run a marathon. Like I can't do this. And so then I was like, all right, well, let me just think about the movie. And like, I laid on my bed And I thought about it for, like, probably an hour, and I came up with the ending of the movie, of what I actually shot for The Alternate, and I spent the whole weekend, like, I was supposed to, like, hang out with Beth, (coughs) and, like do whatever and I was like no I can't everything's canceled I am just sitting here and I'm gonna write until this is out so I wrote the whole outline in like two days for the whole movie and then I spent the rest of the week writing the script and it, I turned it in on the day and he read it gave me notes in two hours and then we sat and we ate steaks and talked about it that's so a good friend that's what worked for me that's
1: a really <laughs> good friend's and I think yeah. some people work <laughs> from fear. I work from fear as well. Like, I'm very yeah, similar. Yeah. And I, I made this joke before, but on my first feature, I the first person I brought on was a woman named Tiffany Gray, who's on my third feature. She's actually been a part of all my major projects. Oh, nice. I love Tiffany. She's a very warm, kind individual, but there's something slightly intimidating about her. And it really works when she sets the deadline, because there's no wiggle room, right? And the joke was, she's like, I'm going to slap you if you don't deliver pages this week. And like, there was something about that where I was like, I think she will. Like, I think she's going to do it. And I think if you have a friend and it's not an empty threat, right? Like that, that works. Anything works. I don't know if it's patriarchal. I don't know. I don't engage in these kind of conversations, though. I really love Alicia for bringing it up and like, you know, like, uh, you know, our mind grapes are are working it out because it's an interesting topic. But like more more interestingly, it's like what works for you. And if she doesn't want to sit down every day and it frustrates her and inspires her, then don't do it. Yeah, I need fear. I need
0: fear. Deadlines Deadlines work for me Like a, a deadline With a consequence <laughs> That yeah. That is what I So if I really Am serious about Writing anything Like I should just Set myself a deadline With a consequence But yeah I'm not, I'm not there yet But w- maybe soon What's going on with you Is there anything That you want to talk about Anything going on In your world Any news updates Anything
1: Um, We're out to More casts For the sci-fi film I can't talk about them Nor do I ever Really find out Details Ooh. about it Because I'm a director For a hire <laughs> So I only find out If they pass Or if they say but every now and right. then I'll get like a notification that someone opened open the Vimeo link of my movie. And I'm like, mm. I wonder, and then I'll go to my Twitter page and I'll be like, I wonder what it's like to look at my Twitter page from a famous actor's point of view. And what would they think of me? And would they want to join the film from this like weird Liz Manichel? Right. So I'm kind of in like a cloudy state with that project And I would say the main area of focus for me right now is figuring out a name for this kid like that. Oh, nice. Because I really want, it's like a very important decision to me, which it is for everyone, but I overthink it, right? I overthink it. Like it needs to have 45 million reasons why this kid has this name. And we have a name that Sean and I kind of settled on and I'm not going to say it, but I'm like every day Googling I'm like, what does it mean? And what does it mean in this language? And biblically, what happened to that? And why? And if I look them up on Instagram, like if I look up that name on Instagram, like are they all like models or are they scientists? Like I'm doing
0: too much. Wow, you go deep. I do too much. I, I like that idea of like, like typing the name into Instagram and like what kind of people share the name with your future offspring. Right. That's really cool. Well, cause I want to do that.
1: Sean, because they, they're going to have my last name as a middle name and Sean's last name and Sean's last name is Wright, which is very common. So like you're going to see a wider smattering of people, mm-hmm. right?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a fact about this name that I want to tell you, but it's going to give away the name. So I'm not even, but there's a James Bond connection wow. to this name, which is kind oh. of cool. So
0: it's not Pussy Galore, is it? It's not, Just but we made a lot galore. of Pussy
1: Galore jokes oh. about it. But uh, okay. it is not Pussy Galore.
0: <laughs> okay, good.
1: What if I came to you, Aurek, and I was like, we're going to name her Pussy Galore? Like, what the hell would you do? Like, how
0: would you I don't do know. I'd be like, that's commitment. <laughs> you know, you're setting your daughter up for a very specific life, I think. <laughs> right. um, a- unfortunately. A
1: life <laughs> of reclaiming. The the term pussy galore.
0: Maybe she would like revert exactly like go exact opposite against what your expectations would (coughs) be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, She'd
1: become a nun. I mean, like really interesting (laughs) things could happen. That is the major focus right now is like I the deck is done for my horror feature. I'm going to start like doing more creative development there. But I'm just kind of thinking and obsessing over. My child's name is if it's a character in a screenplay, right? It's like, has to be perfect.
0: Do you do do the whole like schoolyard test to see like what, how that name can be made fun of? And if you're setting kids up too easy, I do that. I always like, okay, rhymes with, you know, this, or like they could say, you know, Fanny, Fanny, Putin, Annie or something, you know, it's like, okay, can't be Fanny. Nope. Not doing that. Not, not, uh, you know, not setting them up (laughs) for that disappointment. You know, I,
1: I, I do do that to a way, but like when I didn't realize that Colin, our son's name Colin, is so close to colon, like mm. in a body, like not semicolon, but like a colonoscopy right. colon. And right. when he was baptized, that's how the priest pronounced it. They kept saying colon. Colin.
0: <laughs> colon. Yes. You're like, no, it's Colin, damn it.
1: (laughs) But like, my name's Liz and like Ryan Ridley in high school called me Jizz. Like, there's no way you can avoid a schoolyard name. So I don't, is that what you guys are doing?
0: No, I do that. Beth doesn't do it. I just, I I veto names because of that. (laughs) I'll be like, oh, can't call him that because then he'll be this. No, not going to work. Pass. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be something that a kid's going to figure out how to make fun of your, your kid with their name so like you can only do so much i just like to make it a little bit more difficult you know like no softballs you know yeah anyways that's fun i i I, like the whole kid naming thing is really great and everything but like i feel like You know, like, you could do all the planning you want, but like, it's, I feel like, well, at least my experience, it was like the last couple weeks was when it really became more clear. And then when they're born, it's solidified. It's like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. And then when she was born, it's like, yep, you're, you're Bibiana. Okay, done. Perfect. But, like, you might look at them and be like, "Nah, you're not what I thought you were. You're something else, you know? And then you have to, like, think real fast. But, like, we we kind of had it planned and, like, we knew and then, and then and she affirmed it when she was staring at us. So, yeah, I think we're going to probably get this. But I think it's too early. To me, it's like there's too many months ahead before I can actually pick a name. Like, I have to wait, like, at least another month or two before we're going to actually get to the final, like, top three or whatever. I
1: got to call her that name now. Like, I, I got to know it now. And, like... When Colin was born, I remember lying there right after birth. And then all these other names came through me. They were like way more appropriate for him. And I was just like pushing them away. Push them away. It's Colin. It's Colin. It's Colin. So I think I'm going to regret no matter what. But you (laughs) know what? Everyone listening won't regret supporting us on Patreon www.patreon.com slash podcast. It is how we keep the show going. Every single dollar goes towards actually really every single dollar goes towards the editor right now and he deserves all your money. Jeff is listening, but Jeff is also editing. And thank you, Jeff, for being a wonderful editor. Also, don't forget to check out jambox.io. It's a royalty free music and SFX company and their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood level films or with global brands like DJI they offer customized plans to fit your needs so check out jambox.io but without any more delay here's our chat with Don Jones Redstone
2: Jumping right in can you give us the elevator pitch for Mother of Color Yes so Mother of Color is about a single mother of two who begins receiving messages from her ancestors as she sets out to make it to a life-changing job interview with a local commissioner.
0: How many days did you shoot the film?
2: We shot for about 13 days in Portland, Oregon, summer 2021 during COVID.
0: Wow. (laughs) Good job. a lot to
2: talk about there. (laughs) What can you speak of with regard to the budget? Less than 200K.
0: So you wrote the movie. Talk about the origin of the script and where it came from.
2: Yes. So I had worked on a short film with the star, uh, Anand del Rocio, and we wanted to work together on something again. And I happened to one summer day be at a park with her kids, not her, but her kids and a mutual friend of ours and my daughter. And I observed this conversation between her two kids, which was one of them began to sing a song, and the other one said, "You can't sing that song because uh, mommy says the singer doesn't make good choices and he doesn't treat women very well." And they, these were like a maybe a six-year-old, <laughs> like a four-year-old, and wow. um, there was like that moment. It was it was funny, but it was also it just it made me think a lot about a character that might be inspired by Anna. I consider to be sort of like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but with two kids. And the tension that they might face in, you know, trying to raise their boys to be good men and being like, you know, very political, but also just a good mom. And maybe she hasn't been treated well by the men in her life. And how does that, you know, what happens when you're trying to raise boys in this world and et cetera. So that was kind of the seed. And so I pitched her, Anna the idea of making something that would take inspiration from her life. As a single mother of two working in the political realm. And yeah, I guess I should say it at some point, but she is now actually running for county commissioner here in Portland um, since Uh the film's come out. And it's really, really cool. I'm hoping to capture some moments of her campaign as like an epilogue for the film. Okay, there's a lot there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> in putting together a timeline of like you being inspired by the the event on the playground until now, what was that? And what was that duration? Like, when was that?
2: Okay, that was probably in 2019. And I began interviewing Anna. I interviewed other like single moms and mothers of color, but I began interviewing her and I was still interviewing her. I remember when COVID started because I remember we had a conversation about it you know, oh, there's this disease that's coming and how's that going to factor in? And because we were thinking about trying to film it in 2020, we held off. And that was a good thing because the, sk- the script began to evolve. And you'll remember in 2021 or uh, 2020, there were major protests after the murder of George Floyd, and they were definitely happening like every night for over 100 nights here in Portland, and. I, I really wanted to find a way to tie in, you know, her journey and like trying to get to this job interview with what's happening in our world and the, the bigger picture. And so I have found a way to incorporate that into the script in the form of this tinnitus that both Anna and the character experience, which turns out is uh, the, the ancestors trying to talk with her about her path.
0: Wow, that's Awesome. If you could change one thing about the film in any way at all, like story, process, whatever, technical, what would that one thing be?
2: Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, this is my, my first time feature film director. I've made a bunch of shorts. So, of course, there's like a million things that I would do differently just because I you know, like learning by doing, trying to think of, I mean, some of them, even things that I thought I would do differently than I thought. No, it's actually, it turned out better than I hoped. That is a hard question for me to answer. I wish we weren't filming during COVID. That's not what you're asking.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you can't control that, right? Like that's not, you know, I, I asked this question to somebody else recently and they said like something similar, like COVID go away. Like, you know, there was no COVID, but it's like, no, you're not a god. Like you can just only what you can control. You know. <laughs>
1: can you can you go into what you just said though? Because I thought that was really interesting. Like there were things that you thought you should you were going to do differently, but it was actually better the way you ended up doing it.
2: Well, I mean, the first thing that happened is that I wanted it to, to be a really small set, and I know that that's not exactly the story that I wrote because it turns out we have you know tons of locations and actors, and it's very ambitious. It's not the like two people sitting in a talking talking in a room that you're supposed to make for your first feature, and I I just kept wanting to like keep the crew small, and the producers were just like, no, that is not realistic. (laughs) You know, we have even if there's just help like moving gear, we don't necessarily need so many people to set everything up. But it just it felt like it started to get unwieldy when it grew like you know bigger than anything I'd seen, and we had a production office, and I just. I felt like it was like an intimate story in a lot of ways, and I, I wanted it to be small and intimate. And I'd you know seen these examples of like The Rider or you know other f- films that I looked at and thought, okay, here's a story where they they went out and just like filmed with like a really you know bare bones crew, and it it just it did get really big. But it 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 one it did enable us to make our schedule obviously, but also we really because of all the things we did in trying to also have an incredibly diverse crew. We had this like, I know it's like I feel like it's overused, but like this family that formed around the film with like so many women of color that were, you know, part of the set that were, you know, some of them learning and some of them, you know, stepping into new roles and there was just like this feeling of, you know, gratitude and like we're doing something special. We're doing this during COVID when hardly anyone else is filming in Portland and there were so many things about it that were unique. It created this environment that just like made it 10 times better in terms of like, you know, people caring and like wanting to work hard and, you know, get things right for the film. And it just, I wanted that experience for my first feature and like tried to really pick people that cared about people and cared about the story rather than just saw it as a job. And as it grew more and more people came on board that like loved it and loved us as a team, and that's that's something, an example of something that I didn't want to happen that happened, <laughs> and made it way better. <laughs>
0: and what was your crew size when all said and done, roughly?
2: I I, don't know, I was thinking of the number we put it we put actually we published data on our website of who we hired. It's about like thirty core crew.
0: Nice. I was I was around the same for my feature. So. Yeah. And I wanted the same thing to keep it smaller. <laughs>
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's not always realistic.
0: So, right. I learned
1: why, why this movie? Like, I think all of us obsess over what we want our first feature to be, right? Is was this always the plan or was this. Was there something, were there other projects that didn't happen and this one just
2: seemed to be the one that had momentum? I do have other scripts. I, yeah, I think part of it was that I wanted this one to be smaller. I had another script that was much, you know, it was like an action film that had like, you know, mergers and... <laughs> <laughs> Fun explosions and stuff. That's not also maybe not realistic for a first feature. And I I really wanted to work with Anna. Just like when she said she wanted to do something together, I was like, let's do it. Like that's it just felt right. And the more we talked and I could see a story unfolding. And I mean, even just thinking about like what happened with the pandemic with childcare and my own experiences with that, you know, my wife and I are working from home and are my daughter starting kindergarten and, you know, online for two hours a day and just thinking about like the way we take care of each other and how we don't have the kind of the social supports that we should have in this country. It just, it was like, this is the right story to tell at this time.
0: I'm curious, like, you know, I'm a parent, Liz is a parent. Like how did you manage, you know, taking care of your child while shooting your feature?
2: My my wife. My wife and my family. My father and stepmother. My stepmother's actually in the film. They they came from Boston and they helped my wife, but it was yeah, it takes a toll on the whole family, obviously. I think you, you two know to to make a film and she did get to come to set and just kind of like observe a couple of days and we tried we, she's actually in it for like one background scene. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. And I mean I just I was gone. I was gone and even when I was home I was not present because I was, you know, looking at things on my computer or figuring out, you know, problem solving with the producers and yeah, it was, it's very intense, as you know.
1: Not to belabor. This is like a topic Aurek and I talk about a lot. So the, you're not unique in being grilled in this aspect. <laughs> but would you have any advice on how to talk to your child about what you're embarking on as a filmmaker, like how to frame it for them?
2: I mean, I think for a lot of people, there's like this excitement around movie making. And so I I think there's a part of her that's like, wow, that's really cool. But I did try to explain how, you know, there was going to be a period of time when one, like, she loves her grandparents, and they took her and did a million things with her that I never would done like, you know, like Slurpees and <laughs> <one of the laughs> music park. And so she had like the time of her life, probably it was like one of her best summers, all the things they took her out to do. But, but I think also there's kind of a balance in our lives in that, you know, I'm going to go pick up my daughter and we have a hard stop at that time because I have more time right now and in a flexible schedule in a way that my wife doesn't. So, you know, we've, we've kind of negotiated like how we can push and pull to be able to help each other do the things that we want to do in our lives. But I think she's, my daughter sees that and and, and knows that, you know, mommy's available this time and Mama's available that time. And, and I think she really loved being in the set, being on set and coming to the screenings. Like she's been to the last two that we've had in Portland. And the first one we sold out the Hollywood theater, 384 people. This last one we had last week, 192 people, Like, like she loves that experience and I'll be up on stage and she'll just like run up and be hugging me while I'm trying (laughs) to do the Q&A or whatever. Uh She sees kind of the result of all of that. So hopefully, I don't know, hopefully she gets it.
0: I want to hear about the COVID difficulties shooting in Portland. Like, did you have to deal with SAG COVID restrictions or there special COVID restrictions you had to deal with in Portland? Like, what what was that impact on you and the team and how did you manage
2: that? Yeah, we we did follow SAG rules. And there's also some Oregon protocols. I think they're the SAG ones are probably tougher. We did our own testing. We which even just something as simple as that, like added this other layer of like, okay, now everyone has to be coming into the office and blah, blah. I'm so grateful we had an actual office that someone donated to us. I know there were like some moments when one day, like I got to set and one of the producers was like, don't come in here. And I saw that she was like, testing someone at the last minute that, you know they were just it's hard because the, everything's in flux and things get changed and so trying to make sure folks are tested and safe at the right time for an evolving schedule made it it's a strain it was a strain on our producers but yeah you know, one of them had been trained and we also had our covid compliance officer and there the, you know there were some moments where okay someone has a cough you know we did when did they start sniffling was it after the t- there were just there were it was a constant conversation. Moments where someone just absentmindedly took off their mask, and everyone, you know, it just at the beginning, people were definitely more worried than, you know, now, even though it's still present. And it seems like, you know, we know now more about like it's not necessarily transmitted as much through surfaces. And but all the like the wiping and the did you touch that? And, you know, just there's like, do you remember that on CNN they like demoed, wipe
1: the wiped? Yeah. <laughs> God, that was traumatizing. I was like, I've never wiped anything. I'm going to get all the COVID. And then, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, and the the expense too, of just like all the supplies and and the masks. And I mean, I, I'm really grateful that we had a, a really an incredible compliance officer who, you know, was gentle, but like thorough with us and reminding us and walking through and wiping things down. You know, just we we had that dedicated person that you're supposed to have. And that helped a lot, but it was it was really hard and there weren't a lot of people filming at that time. So it was kind of like people were looking to us to see like what we were doing and how we we're pulling that off. And I credit our producers, uh, Tara Johnson, Mettinger, and Ashley Song, who really oversaw that. Let's talk.
1: You alluded at the top of the conversation about diversity and hiring in front of and behind the camera. And I just wanted to see, you know, was is there a specific outreach practice that you like to participate in? Is it just personal recommendations in terms of hiring? Or do you go to nonprofits, artist support organizations? How do you find the crew and the cast? And how do you Really push for diversity at every angle of of your production.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that question because I think it's something that a lot of people want to do differently, but don't necessarily know how. As a person of color myself, <laughs> maybe it's easier for me in some ways that you know, some of these folks are are my friends, and you know, and have their friends. You know, like I have access within my community, but. It's true that because we knew we wanted to be able to say we had hired mostly women of color, we had to look a little harder for some of the positions And it meant in multiple cases that we had to find people who were ready to step up and into a new role. And then it meant we had to make sure that they had their own like supports and mentors and people that would help them. And so without like naming names necessarily, you know, I can think of someone who we set up to have like a one hour meeting with someone that has a lot more experience in a particular role and they met with them and then they were like, no, it's fine. You know, we offered to pay that person and they said, you know, no. Oh, it's fine. They can reach out to me anytime. I also gave them all my spreadsheets and blah, blah, blah. You know, like we found people that wanted to help them step up and into the role. And the one of the best things about this whole project is that I there are multiple people who started off in lower level positions that have now like moved up and are working with like, oh, I'm the Working with the top AC in town as a second AC, like one of our PAs, or there was someone that was a PA that moved into helping out the grip. And then now she's a grip and just getting work all over town also. And it's, I can see how, yes, we had to take these extra steps, but that it's been worth it. And there's been like a progression from a number of folks that started off on on our set.
0: So I want to hear about how you were able to raise the finances for the feature. Like, what was that process like? And how are you able to execute it? Like I, I, pretty quickly, actually, from like 2019 to like 2021.
2: Yes. So, okay. A few things. First, I did a Kickstarter and we raised $45,000 on that. Nice. Yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> every part of this, it was like something I'd never done before that I wasn't totally sure I could do, but that my producers were like, we're just going to start laying down the tracks and you're just going to start walking and <laughs> we'll get there. And like, okay. (laughs) So we started off with the Kickstarter and I've done Kickstarters before. I've made a bunch of shorts. They've just been lower numbers. But so there was that. I would gotten a grant to do the proof of concept, which was really helpful in like continuing to develop the character, the script, the look and feel. And some of that money went into the development and pre-production stuff. I got a grant from Portland Art Museum. I got a grant from Prosper Portland for post production, which is a a part of the city basically. But I think that was like $7,000. We also use the state instead of program so we got a ch- chunk of change back at the end that also then helped with post. I got two private donors, one of whom I just reached out to on Facebook and they wow. had been connected/ seen a short that I had directed through the theater world. I feel like theater is like this untapped source of funding because there are there's a lot of money in theater. It's shocking like I, I, I got hired to direct a short during the pandemic from theater people because you know theaters like what well, how do we how do we still tell our stories and i just i couldn't believe how much money there was to to make something two private donors yeah one person i reached out to on facebook and kind of did my pitch and she gave me $30,000, which was incredible. Someone within my family who I made a pitch to and also was able to get a chunk of change. And then we also through there's a, a program called the Pathways Program here in Oregon where you can get if someone has a dedicated mentor and you do this paperwork and you do these other things. Then you can get reimbursed for the wages of uh, a certain number. So we had four people that had these pathways positions that were basically covered.
0: Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. That's huge.
2: So I didn't do the math. I don't I think it's possible to do the math.
1: And I don't know if you want to be that explicitly transparent on this podcast, but do you see your like hill to climb in terms of revenue and recoupment? As the total budget, or are you kind of like xing out some of the
2: soft money and grants yeah. for yourself? I don't have any investors per se, so there is no like oh hard money. Like the, oh. I'm very fortunate. Yeah, no one's like so. It's like donor.
0: It was all don donations. Oh, yes. that's incredible.
2: Yeah, you're an ideal situation. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what the
0: hell? Well, so I don't incredible. even think
2: I. Could, <laughs> it terrifies me to try to get someone to invest in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The thing is, I'm I'm already seeing though how I could start to, you know, I guess recoup some of this money. It's so it's so it's so weird because there's so many people that gave so much to the film. And, you know, when I start to make money, there's this part of me. I know I worked harder and longer and I'm still working harder longer than everybody else. But there's this part of me that wants to be like, you should have been paid more. Here's this. <laughs> you know, I, I want to give money to them as I. You can give to... them money. You, some I, some I, people have done money. That. I can, but yeah. I'm not done paying for the film. You know, I. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah. Well, worry, I worry <laughs> about step your one flesh. first. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I have done that. I've been, there's been a few people I've been like, we should have given you a little bit more here, or, you know, whatever as, as money comes in. But I've been doing, I'm maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I've been doing, okay. you know, festival screenings. We're on the festival circuit right now, but I've also mixing in just some of our own screenings with theater. So the two Portland screenings, like I rented the theater and we made money. And all that yes. goes into, you know, the marketing and my travel to go see the festivals and, Various other things, but <clears throat> ads and, you know, like Northwest Film Forum, they're going to split the door with us. Like, that's amazing to find theaters that are willing to do that. The ones here in Portland, I had to just outright rent and pay up front. Mm. But I see a way where when we find our audience, which is a very specific, it's a niche audience, but, but there's people that like really are connecting with the film and like they're just like going online and they're talking about it and they're, you know, people were crying in the theater. Like it just it's been incredible to see that there is an audience for it. And I don't know if it's the festival audience, um, you know, where they're, they're not necessarily attracting like the people that are going to connect with the film. It's not the same, even though I I love, you know, getting into festivals certainly (laughs) and, and, you know, meeting, meeting with people, but it's just been interesting to see like how different it is. I feel like we're a West coast film also. (laughs) Like There's something about the vibes (laughs) It'll be interesting to see what LA is like. We're going to be there on the 18th. Oh,
1: nice.
2: I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm jumping with another question. Considering that and considering,
1: you know, I know you and I have indirectly discussed distribution and are you... Are you anticipating that distributors will understand? I mean, are you going, first of all, are you pitching to traditional distributors or are you anticipating they will understand the niche audience and the way that people have embraced this title?
2: I'm super skeptical that they will <laughs> understand. I, so, okay, I had this experience with US in Progress. I went to US in Progress in Wroclaw, Poland last, God, was that 2021? Yeah, fall of 2021. So like two months after I finished production, we got in. I was like, what? We're going to Poland? And there was like six filmmakers there. And I, as part of the that experience, we got to meet with European film market people. And I don't, I mean, one, the film was like totally different back then. It was way too early. But, you know, just seeing their response and also just immediately learning a lot about how distribution works. And I'm still learning just because I've only made shorts. I just felt like I don't know who, like I don't see anyone here that's like of the people, the representatives that have been sent that were, are going to be like, I really get this film, and there's someone here that looks like me that's going to that's going to get it the same way some of the audiences have gotten it. So I don't I don't know that that's going to happen, and I don't know if I should try to you know pursue that or not. I I've been doing research and I've been having meetings with other filmmakers. I had a really good meeting with another Portland filmmaker who talked a lot about indie rights. I have a meeting with Neil Kopp here in Portland tomorrow. And I'm hoping he'll illuminate some things for me. I don't know. I did we had some other film people in the audience that are part of the local community that have these bigger connections that have offered to like, you know, help figure out what this could look like. But I'm I'm learning as I go and I'm not totally sure how to do this, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so you're kind of in the thick of it right now, trying to find distribution like the how like when was the movie finished was it just like a few months ago or like a year ago I mean, it's- or <laughs>
2: know when i'm supposed to say that because it's not technically finished like i'm still we've been working on adding the final mix with foley in it oh wow so it's still i mean it's been it's fine it's just like (laughs) it definitely adds a (laughs) lot to have that in but it's not finished finish so i I think i've been saying january
0: 2023 wow okay nice so Like, do you? Like, it seems like you're figuring it out. But, like, what is your ultimate game plan for distribution? Like, are you trying just to get out to, you know, no? Okay.
2: I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm exploring it. And I do feel like once we get online, I can, I can find our audience most easily, but I, I feel like right now what I'm doing is kind of proving an audience. I don't know if that's required or a thing, but I see how, you know, I'm building, I'm building out our, you know, Instagram has 1700 followers. We're collecting you know but we just got our first review people are talking about the film like i'm just trying to Do more of that to, you know, build up the audience, spread the word, get good turnout at the the screenings that we do have and continue on the festival circuit. I don't feel pressure to do this immediately. Should I? I don't know.
0: Well, see, I guess that's my point of my question is because like you're in a unique position, like you don't have the pressure of owing anyone any money. So you don't need to worry about like what you think is going to make the most money. Like you just get to do what's best for the movie. Which is which is super exciting. So I was just like, I'm like kind of putting myself in your shoes, like, oh, if I could do anything and I didn't have to worry about the return, like, what would that be, you know? And maybe it doesn't change it at all. Maybe it is the same answer, mm. but like to me, it feels like maybe you could, you know, do things a little differently. Maybe I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it's it's a lot of work. I do I want to be a film marketer. That's what it boils right. down to. For I right. feel like. Yeah. like how much of my life do I want to spend? It takes people don't know like how much work it takes to to, you know, get people to turn out. I, I mean, the good thing is that I see how it's like, if I get the trailer in front of this certain audience, they want to come see it. Like we, you know, we the screening that we just had, like Esperanza Spalding tweeted, tweeted about her or uh, uh, put us in her stories about how much she loved the film. And like, just like little, little thing, you know, we love about the uh, Luciana Mendoza of Ela Bamba has an album out right now. That's like number five in LA and is agreed to help with press potentially. And just there's these little people that like seem to really care about it and like want to help. And I see how I could keep doing that. It's just that I also have these two scripts that I'm developing and I want to continue to move forward with those. And I also have like my day job is doing video production and I'm just trying to balance it all. It's a lot.
1: For what it's worth, there's no, I mean, you know this, but I'm just going to say it out loud. Like there's no right answer. Like literally every single client I talk to has this kind of quan of like work-life balance because it's like the potential is seemingly infinite. You could work, Mm -hmm. you know, all day, all night and maybe see a return, but you really don't know. And there's a giant question mark around it. So there's a lot of like guilt and pressure around What's the best thing you can do in this moment for the best return? And Ulrich and I talk about this too. Like Mm. we talk about this a lot, actually. (laughs) Like, should I do that? What like last Facebook ad? Even though I'm exhausted, right? Like, what's it really (laughs) gonna do for me? Right. But like, it's your bandwidth, right? And if you feel like creatively exhausted. And it's going to take away from other parts of your life. Then that it, you're, the decision is made for you. All mm-hmm. right. I mean, already yeah. I I really could talk about distribution forever, and maybe we'll pivot back to this. But I wanted to hear about shadowing Deborah Granick because oh, I yeah. saw that you shadowed Deborah Granick, and that's really cool. And just tell me what yeah. it's like
2: if you don't mind. Yeah. So there's a woman here named Juliana Lukasic who started this short-lived program called the Five to Fifty Shadow Program, and she did it with Oregon Film. States, you know, film organization, and they wanted to, you know, offer opportunities for shadowing. And in their first attempt at it, it was with Deborah Granick, and I was invited to sub- apply and submit some of my work. And I got it. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what, what the competition was or what it was that I said, but I got to follow Deborah around <laughs> during filming. It was a set number of days. You know, I want to say it was maybe like seven days total that – I followed her around. Her producer slash writer and Rossellini or co-writer, I guess, really was kind of like my host in the sense that, you know, th- the plan is that you're not supposed to like, you know, get in the way of this huge production, obviously. So I was supposed to not talk and just shadow, which was a little bit weird because I, at some point I realized that I wasn't sure if Deborah had been told that I had been told that. So I just seemed like someone that didn't talk and was just like, and I also felt there were moments where I just felt uncomfortable because I was like i am right here like it just i wanted to step back if there was conflict or anything that came up or i i guess i just kept thinking like if i were in this position i would not want someone standing right here next to me but they were really really generous with me and you know like from day 1 they just like welcomed me into their sphere and i could you know stand next to them during all these meetings and talking with actors and just like seeing how she tells stories and how she works with the actors probably was one of the most illuminating things for me. And, and she just, they both her and Anne had spent so much time in Portland before production even started. They'd spent so much time with the story and, you know, all the drafts and they, they were just really like really thoughtful. Like they, anything that would come up that you could see them, like, you know, talk and discuss something. And Deborah would have these cool ideas about like how to talk to the actors to get them kind of inspired her to try different things. And yeah, it was it was really the experience of a lifetime. And I think for me, one of the biggest pieces was just seeing her like at the top, you know, at the top of the the totem pole. And how she, you know, people were listening to her and people were like, what does she think? And just like, I just hadn't seen that before. So that was incredible, really powerful. And so we got, we had three shadows on my set too, because of that. We had three shadows and they, you know, they did different days and different times, but all women of color also.
0: Oh, wow, that's on. awesome. Do you remember like one thing or a couple things or anything about uh, how Deborah worked with actors that you took away for your own film?
2: I remember this one moment when she was talking to Thomas and McKenzie and she had this, this pencil in her hand and she said something very simple, like, now when you roll that pencil, I want you to put, you know, all of your angst and anger and uncertainty that you feel about what's happening to you into that role. And it was just this very, I don't know, like you could see it. Like she, uh, you know, if someone hadn't heard that they'd be just like, Oh, she's, she's rolling a pencil, but it just so like somehow infuse this like emotion into her action and, Thomason was just like, you know, understood when she said that. And it was just like this, like this little small thing. But again, just like something that it wouldn't have occurred to me to to say. And you could see this connection between the two of them, even if it didn't make it into the film, ultimately. Oh, cool. I know that you, well,
1: you mentioned having an action film, right? You know, And I know there are, the of these two other scripts that are on your plate, who knows what genre there are. And then I'm also kind of like weighing... The argument for donations and artist support organizations and nonprofits and grants, when you're making a movie where your intentions are so obvious, right? Like you're trying to make the world a better place and you're trying to bring inclusivity to the crewing process. Like I think there's a lot that could be incredibly captivating to philanthropists. So I'm just wondering when you're pitching like your action script or your genre script, even if they have similar infrastructures or paradigms, do you receive the same response or is it different because it's not a drama anymore and it's more co- commercially minded?
2: I haven't pitched these scripts to anybody, so I don't and I've never <laughs> pitched a script. <laughs> um, I mean, I have obviously I pitched this this script, but I do I guess it's kind of my thing. Like all of my shorts, with maybe the exception of one of them, have had this kind of social justice component to them. Both of the scripts are, sh- are comedies. I think I'm <laughs> more of a comedic mood these days. One of them is kind of a dark comedy. But I do think that that is kind of what I'm known for in Portland. And, those, and I'm mostly talking to people that know me in some capacity. And one of these scripts, though, is we're calling it like nine to five meets the film industry. So there, I think there's some film people, hopefully, that might be interested in hearing, you know, more about that. But it does also still have this, like, DEI piece to it.
0: So... The process you went on to make your first feature, like, do you feel like that's a, like something that you could replicate for your next one? Or do you think that you're going to have to kind of approach it a little bit differently? Like, are you going to go back to crowdfunding? Are you going to go back to trying donors? Or do you feel like you need to, like,
2: come up with a completely different plan? I feel like I, I can't do that again. That felt, like, unsustainable to me. I mean, there's things like the, you know, the Oregon film incentives that, that can happen again, probably. But... I feel like I have to go either way bigger or way smaller and toward that end, like one of the smaller things, I, I, know, I saw that you had Carter Smith on your show who I met in in Wurzlaff also as part of US in Progress and we've stayed in touch. And there's some, another filmmaker that I met there named Pete O's. Do you all know Pete O's? Well, <laughs> check out his film, Jessica. It's like Jessica with a list and he, he just got a, a New York Times film review for it, but he made a film with just like eight people that went to South by Southwest. And it's called horror, but I don't know. I don't think it's horror personally, but <laughs> it's a horror genre supposedly. And they, you know, he shot it and they collaboratively wrote it. Actors also helped as, you know, as crew in some, in some ways. And he's done this a few different times. And this particular film, though, just seems like a smash success. But I I think, you know, he's not the first person to do that. But I think like listening to him talk about his process after having made, you know, he has a he has a film that's on Hulu with like Julia Gardner in it and had like the, you know, huge crew and set and hearing him talk about how after having that experience, he wanted to just get back to like why he got into making movies, which was like telling stories with your friends. Like I, that just really resonated with me, and i i wanna I want to have a smaller story that I could tell, and I, one of my scripts is that. And I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen.
1: I'm similarly minded right now. Like I just and I'm trying to push my latest production to be smaller and smaller, but then like the DP I'm working with or the production design I'm working with, it's like I really want to give them enough support so they're not exhausted. And anyway, my point is like. Do you shoot, I know you work in video production, like, is there a role that you're excited about doubling as in order to be a part of this consolidation? Or is it, what is, what is the hack in your mind to get to that smaller number?
2: Well, I do shoot, I just started off as like the one woman band, like kind of doing everything. So I I do shoot and edit and could could fill those roles. And yes, it comes, it's not going to look the same as, (laughs) you know, my feature. And, but it's also, you know, sometimes I get tired of like the look of the, like, I don't know, (laughs) like sometimes you want a window to just be a window. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> instead of like something that takes you know a couple hours to like set up and <laughs> like yes you need to control the light but like it just I, I think that I, I could shoot something yes and I mean if you I think what's really interesting about Pete's film is to see how it, it just like makes the case for like it doesn't some of these things don't matter as much as you think they matter like it really does come down to the sto- the story and if people are you know, intrigued or delighted or feel something when they watch it, and I I could see making something like that. It's not the only way that I want to tell stories, but I like the idea of of uh, trying something like that. It sounds like a lot of fun to me, honestly. And it's not you know like the, he talks about the camera he used; it's not a super fancy camera, and you can see that. And when he like films the sunset or whatever, but like it's interesting. It's interesting to me. Just
1: un unpaid endorsement for one of my favorite movies, The Foxy Merkins, by Madeline Olnick it was a $14,000 feature shot in New York, played Sundance. <laughs> and if, yeah, if you are, you looking it up right now? Oh, yeah, I
2: am. <laughs> I don't know what everyone <laughs> you had knows. You me at Lesbian Hookers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is
1: the funniest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It okay. is so good. <laughs> But anyway, but you you don't even think about the look. Even though I th- I agree that the look is very important sometimes, but sometimes there's a film where the concept is so strong or their story is so strong that you can you could get lost anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Just up, up up voting up up voting what
0: you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you you kind of talked about this. I'm going to ask the same question I asked in the beginning in a different way basically, cuz mm-hmm. what I really want to hear about is like From when you made your movie, like, what are some? What is one thing or anything that you would do differently going into your second? Or was it because you seem so calm and like seemed like it went really well, like? Or was it perfect and you would just do it the same again? Because like I did not have that experience on my first movie; I was stressed out the whole time. So I'm just wondering, like, like, was it smooth as silk as it seems it was, or was there were there things that you would do differently? And like, if not, like, what what was? What do you think the secret was for you having such a nice, smooth production?
2: I don't know. Okay. I There were definitely problems. You know, whether it was like people... There were a couple of occasions where people had things happen in their personal lives that meant they had to leave all of a sudden mm. or they couldn't be there when they were supposed to be. We had a, a one location kind of fall through at the last minute. We had those are probably some of the some of the bigger ones. I had to deal there was actually something that happened with between two crew members that was a big problem. Mm. <laughs> There, I mean, no. There were there were definitely things that happened, but I, I guess I don't know. Just I've made a bunch of shorts, and I'm used to like having to figure out how to roll with things. I had really good producers who had my back and tried to keep things from me so that I wouldn't get stressed out about some of these things that popped up. I still, I still am really curious about this smaller experience. So that is something that I wanted to happen that didn't happen that ended up being, you know, ultimately beneficial to the film, even though it wasn't what I had originally envisioned. But it does make me. Curious about that, like how to do something on a smaller scale with a different story. I think that that's that's what I want to pursue next. I don't know if I'm answering your question.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I think it kind of did, yeah. So you know, basically, you're just like a level-headed person who had great producers, is what I'm hearing. And that, like, you
2: somewhat experienced. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't go to Sundance with my first short. You know, I mean, I did have my first short was probably my most my most watched thing that I've ever made. But I've made other things since, and I feel like I'm kind of like. Like developing at my own pace and getting better and trying things and I, like I'm yeah. in that sense like I'm not trying to like shoot the moon on the first I don't know I'm yeah maybe. it seems
0: like you didn't put so much pressure on yourself with the first feature which is great cuz like I think like I put a ton of pressure on myself I know a lot of people do with the first movie I think that's like a really great lesson it's like you it don't need to be like the weight of the world on your shoulders you're just you know, making a movie like you've done before. It's just bigger, you know?
2: Well, I also, I think it was something I was reading an interview with Sarah Polly and she was talking about the making of, or actually it was, it was Claire Foy was talking about the making of women talking. And she was saying how Sarah Polly had, had said that it was the, 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 the thing that they paid attention to was how it was made, you know, like, yes, obviously you want to make a good film too, but this, it was incredibly satisfying to be together with this group of people. And, like that feels like an accomplishment on its own that kind of carries me nice. I love that so much. We need to move to our final
1: six questions, first of which is, what's the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it
2: now? <laughs> how far you? So my I'll say my first film was I took a class at formerly the Northwest Film Center. It doesn't exist anymore. and i it was a super eight film, and it was called Snap, Crackle Snap, Crackle Pop. And it was kind of like a spoken word thing with some, you know, black and white imagery. And I was trying to find it because I still love it, (laughs) even though it's this two minute thing. And it does, I feel like it does also set up for the style and the types of stories that I want to tell. But it's, you know, it was like, I didn't know how to edit Super 8 and the actual splicing of film. It was part of a class, but I just remember the moment when, we were all playing our films and I played it and there was just like silence in the room. And the instructor was like, let's watch that again. And like the whole class watched it again. And everyone was, and I was like, like, I got something. <laughs> like there was just this moment where you're like, I don't, you know, it's so indescribable, like to be in the room with people when they emotionally connect is like the best feeling in the world. And I just want to keep doing that over and over again.
0: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: I, I don't know. I can't remember who told me this, but I think it's just this thing about listening to your own voice. Like, I feel like I spent a lot of time, you know, listening to negative voices internally and externally and, and, I'm at a point now where I'm just like, those things don't matter. And I just need to make this thing that feels right to me. Have you ever received any bad advice that you want to share? <laughs> you know, I think I think that I'd heard this before and I initially thought it was good advice and I've changed my mind since, which is somebody had said, you know if you want to make movies you should just start making movies so that you can get the bad ones out of the way so you can get to the good ones but i i just i don't see it like that anymore i do think that you know all of these films all of these you know bad things that happen good things that happen lead up to this moment right now and i'm fine with that you know like it's not a <laughs> i don't know what bad films are like i just i just i just feel so different after going through this and you know this. I know that people want to evaluate films in this certain way, and like you know, talk about Marvel ver- and filmmaking, and what is on the checklist, what's a good film. Like I just, that's not how I watch films. Like I, I somebody I just read this the other day. Someone talked about how art is a trigger for experience, and that's how I. That's how what I. That's how I see films. That's how I. I want to make things, and so what someone may perceive as a bad film, I know was like an incredible journey to get made. And is a trigger for their experience as a filmmaker or other people that might encounter it.
0: Do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
2: I want to keep getting better at my craft. I want to be able to tell bigger and bigger stories with more money. And I have to learn how to play the commercial game perhaps better than I did this time around. (laughs) If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? It sounds so cheesy, but it's this thing about listening to yourself. Like... I just, I I feel like I spent a lot of time worrying about what other people thought.
0: And last question, is making movies hard?
2: Yes, (laughs) making movies is very hard. The title of the podcast is definitely life affirming for me right now because people only see the like production oh you made a movie you know and then there's like years spent afterward like doing all the things yeah i think it's very very hard and i love the chance to come on here and talk with y'all and just like listen to other filmmakers just being really real about like what it takes to get things made so thanks for the podcast (laughs) thank you pimp pimp out your work tell people
1: how they could support you how they can connect with you and how they could see your movie yes should i stop saying also should i just stop saying pimp out is this this (laughs) should i I just stop using this phrase like is it it's 2023 too late for the phrase pimp out maybe that's a whole other podcast i'll stop
2: <laughs> so so you can find me uh, on twitter as a donamo although i'm not really on there as much but i'm mostly on instagram as don jones redstone the film website is motherofcolorfilm.com and you can watch the trailer you can see who we hired you can read all the press we've gotten and see our upcoming screenings which include new filmmakers los angeles march 18th and i'll be there march 23rd at northwest film forum in seattle and then at the end of the month in buffalo new york at valkyrie film festival and there's more announcements that i can't say yet but more coming Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to
1: more episodes?
0: Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month.
1: That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please.
0: But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show!
1: Ulrich, what do you remember about our talk with Dawn?
0: I remember that she was very calm and collected, which, you know... I feel for someone who just made their first feature and like it was just about to be, you know, it's like playing at film festivals and stuff. She was like way more calm than I was at that stage uh, in my features development and release and everything. I also thought 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 it was fascinating. That she got donations for a movie and not, you know, investors.
1: For a fiction which film, is like, too, not for a documentary. For a fiction yeah.
0: film. I mean, my God, I think that's maybe the first time I've ever heard about that. I think we, we might have had someone talk about donations for a do- drama. Or not a drama, no, a documentary. No,
1: she was fiction, but it was like, remember, it was like the school shooting film. And, oh, yeah, But it was yeah, issue-based, yeah, yeah. right? It was a fictionalization right, of a hot-button right.
0: topic. Right, right, Yeah. Yeah, so it's very rare. And so I, I loved hearing about that. I thought it was really fascinating. But she, she just seems like a really wonderful person. And I loved hearing about her ideas of parenting and f- filmmaking. You know, I thought that was, I mean, I'm obsessed with that. Like now, like you and we both are. And so, like, I just, that was great. But what about you? What do you remember from Don's conversation?
1: I just like her. I just like her, just like you. Like, I say that a lot. But I think that we get to interview like a lot of really nice, sweet people. I think it also feels like a requisite sometimes. Where like you could kind of like if someone sends us a pitch email and they're presumptuous or they're rude or whatever, like we usually are like, no, thank you. But Dawn's background and she came to us through a publicist, but Dawn's background was interesting to us. And then it was just like icing on the cake that she was so lovely. And you could see 100% how she attracted a team and investors slash donate like you under like it was her people were coming in to yeah. support her and i if i if she came to me it was like can you help me i'd be like yes don whatever you want you're great like i feel like the money's going <laughs> in good hands like you she just makes you feel like like there's a safety there with her creatively and that there's like integrity so big fan yeah,
0: yeah integrity is a good word yeah i hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as we did but now It is the time for the game. So for you all listening who may not know what this is, this is a a weekly thing. Well, not every week, but it's a segment that we do on the show where our producer, Eric presents us with an indie filmmaker problem, a question, a scenario that we have to solve. You know, so it's kind of like a test. You know, we do these blind, so Liz is going to answer the question this week. She has not seen this question. She doesn't know know anything about this question. It's going to be a complete surprise. I haven't even read the question yet, just a little bit. So this is going to be all fresh, all new. So without further delay, here is this week's question for The Game. As a child, you were inspired by a real-life person who went on real-life adventures. They truly lived a life worthy of biographies, and now that you're an adult, you've decided to make a film depicting their experiences. Because your hero lived with such a full life, the budget will have to be fairly large, and that's where you run into problems. Your producer can only raise a p- poultry amount based on the real life story you'd like to tell. However, they feel th- as though they could raise more, far more, if you embellish the script and add more fictional harrowing scenes. You're torn be- between telling the real life exploits of your childhood, hero, and adding excitement for commerce's sake. Do you a stick to the original story and just try and, and find funding someplace else knowing it might take years? B add the extra scenes because they will be exciting and could attract a larger audience. C. Just make up a fictional character who can go on all the adventures that they that they like without slowing the name of your childhood hero or D. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do?
1: Okay, so this is a really interesting question, right? Because there are things not mentioned that I immediately am like, is that childhood hero still alive? Because if the childhood hero is still alive, you go to them and you go like, what do you feel about this? Do you want to be embellished? Do you want me to, you know, like you would ask them. And and I think that they should have like the say in how their life is depicted. I mean, you pro- I'm guessing from the way this question is asked is that it's an estate you're dealing with, that you have the light life rights and that you're not dealing with the consent of an individual, that they're no longer weighing in creatively. Yeah, but but uh, yeah. For some reason, I'd want to have the blessing, right, of that person. Let, let,
0: let's just assume that they they dead, uh, they dead right now. They dead they or dead. they cannot answer any questions, but they you have their full blessing, or or at least you have the legal blessing yeah. to do whatever you want.
1: Yeah, and then like the other thing that's unanswered is like, is the script there a hundred percent? If the script is there a hundred percent, and I love the script, and my team loves the script, and we're like, this is the movie we want to make. That's one issue. Then you like you go forward with that movie somehow, or you fundraise, or but my I was leaning towards C, which is fictionalize the character and turn it into a bigger movie, not necessarily tied to the childhood hero, but inspired by the childhood hero. Because I mean, I'm just trying to think of like. Uh, like Amelia Earhart, if someone was like, Amelia Earhart's life is not interesting enough, you have to fictionalize it. It's like, there's too much that's sacred to her that I don't want to sully, right? Flight pun, sully. But <laughs> ah. but I would want to take whatever she pulls out of me, that inspiration, that excitement, that like wonderment, and put it into a movie. And I wouldn't want to lose that. And if my producer's on board, like there's a reason they're on board. I trust them. They trust me. And and I think there's a classy way of doing it. So I lean towards fictionalizing it. I think it takes forever to make a movie. And if someone I really trust who's a crew member on my team says, you need more money, this is the way to do it. And it isn't just like a suit from Hollywood saying, ah, see, you need some explosions. You need some sex scenes, you know, but it's someone that I work with and love who's saying that I want to trust them and I want to collaborate with them. So for me, it's like, how do I not disrespect the estate of the individual? That's how I feel.
0: What about you? Yeah, I like that answer. I basically would assume that the budget you can raise, it sounds like it's not enough and that, you know, basically it wouldn't be a good movie with that budget, right? And so it sounds like it's almost like the, the, the real life, you know, exploits are exciting and there's danger and whatever, but it's like not quite enough for like an adventure action movie that's like almost enough. So yeah, I like the idea of like, if you want to make a biography, Make a fucking biography, but like, or make you know, a documentary, right? Like, right, exactly. But like, if you're trying to make an adventure film, like, brings the adventure. So I'm, I'm with you. I would definitely fictionalize the character and like turn it into like something where you're, it's based off this person, but it becomes their own person that you can do whatever you want with and just really go all out and just that. Yeah, if the producer is telling you that you can get the money if you do these things to make it more exciting, get that money. Yeah. You know? And I like what you said about you loving and trusting, cause that's like a really good, good, important part of this is like, yeah, your team, you love and trust your team, you know, or you should, and like, you should have a, a close, close relationship with your producer. So, yeah, taking their advice seems like the right move, you know. But, yeah, I I love this. This is a great question.
1: I worked for Paramount for a little bit when I was in film school. And I was interned to someone very, very high up. I was his first intern. He was, I'll just say that he was very high up at Paramount. And they were making Hansel and Griddle Witch Hunters, if you remember that movie. Like, it came (laughs) out much later than when I was working there. And I listened in on a call that he was having. And I swear to God, he said that they needed to make the witches sexier. And like, I can't get over that, right? Like it's the most absurd comment to ever make. Like it is such a studio head, big wig kind of thing to imply. And it's like, that's. I just want to delineate that that's different from what I think Eric has put in forth. It's not like right. some schmo who's like, ah, the market is gonna come to you if if you have more sex and more violence in this movie, right? It's not bullshit and it's not stupid like rhetoric like make the witches sexier but it it sounds like it comes from a place of thoughtfulness and that's what I'm hoping as we answer this question I'm like really getting protective of this like hypothetical childhood hero right now I'm like worried about them
0: well okay so this is this is some context that I was to save so like I kind of cheated because I already kind of knew this as I was reading this to you but you basically answered the absolute 100,000 percent correct answer because this is based off of Indiana Jones
1: oh
0: it's related to the film Jones as George Lucas, Philip Kaufman, and Lawrence Kasdan pulled heavily from the real-life explorer William, William McGovern, McGovern, who was alive from 1897 to 1964 when creating the titular character. Though McGovern went on many adventures in his life, his were far more academic rather than swashbuckling. So they, like, kind of, you know, kept, like, oh, yeah, that he's, like, a professor and all that stuff. And then they, like, added, like... A fucking giant boulder, like, coming at him, like, while trying to take, get a, 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 a thing to go in a museum. So it's like they, I feel like they did the perfect job. Like, they kept, like, this idea of this, you know, academic person. Because, like, inan Jones is very academic and fo- focused on ac- ac- academics. And, like, you know, this should be in a museum. You know, but they also made him, like, kick total ass. So, like, they did both. It was great. So that's totally the right answer. And like, I feel like people probably don't do this enough anymore. Cause that's why we don't have more movies like Indiana Jones. Well, <laughs> we have Drake uncharted instead. <laughs>
1: well, fun fact is that I wanted to be an archeologist because of Indiana Jones. And oh my God. so did Amy Taylor who listened to the show. And then I guess another thing is in high school, in my philosophy class, we were asked to show beauty. We were asked to show an example of beauty. And I showed the opening sequence to Raiders. I was like, "Oh my god, this is beauty!" That was beauty to me it, it, when I was like 16. I thought, that "Oh movie my god, was it is beautiful."
2: Oh.
0: It's so beautiful. It's 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 a perfect opening to an adventure movie, you know, and to a blockbuster in general. It's so amazing. Imagine if they were like, "No, he's not doing that. He's like on an academic adventure." It's like. No, (laughs) you gotta bring the the spectacle, you know, if it's an adventure movie. So yeah, totally love this this question, and I feel like I hope I would answer the same if I didn't know the connection to Indiana Jones before. But yeah, I you get you get like bonus stars for like knowing exactly the right way (laughs) to handle the scenario. All right, well, if you guys want, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion or your very own game suggestion quandary challenge to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be fantastic. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies Is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals. So go over to www. NetworkISA.org to sign it for free today. Thanks to Don Jones Redstone for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor Jeff Freimuth for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer Eric Toms for just being awesome. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Let's do this. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, my voice is weird, but uh, we should be able to. I won't talk as much, so go faster, right?
1: Same for me. Um, we'll be so fast.
2: You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel.